you would just um, bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning aware of our need of your mercy and grace. We thank you for how you've shown kindness to us and you've uh, guided us to be here to to many of us to grow up in a Christian family and we know that that is a tremendous blessing. Lord, we have people in our hearts here at this church and and friends and family uh, around that are struggling. I just want to lift up a few this morning, ask you to help um, and guide Suzanne's daughter, Jennifer, or Teresa's father, who's going through the struggles that he has in, in their family. For my own family, my cousin's wife, Wendy Pierce, and pray that you would strengthen her body as she recovers from surgery. For many of our um, people here, they know Kyle, who's been through surgery. We ask you to just be with him. Pray for the Brown family as they await the birth of their child. I pray that you would just guide and direct all things with regard to their child coming into this world, daughter that was just born, and we pray that we might see and understand and love the wonderful things in your word. In Christ's name, amen. So um, we are talking about Jesus not having honor in his own hometown. That's what we're going to be dealing with today. It's uh, And really uh, thinking about how that happens and what that's like even in our own lives when you think about uh, maybe uh, growing up in that way and you think about how sometimes people that are really familiar with something are not as... Um, uh, they're not as quick to, to receive something because maybe they're familiar with you or whatever. But I, I thought about a poem this week that uh, I, I, actually Will has up in his room, but it's called It Couldn't Be Done. And I'm not going to read the whole poem to you, but it is kind of an interesting thing because it reminds you of how often there are people on the outside or maybe you on the inside that are telling yourself it can't be done, you know? And... Uh, at one point in the poem, they say, there are thousands to tell you it cannot be done. There are thousands to prophesy failure. There are thousands to point out to you one by one the dangers that wait to assail you. But they're kind of, it's, it's almost like there's this, uh, here is this, uh, the preeminent prophet has come. And they are, uh, instead of receiving what he says, they've rejected it. And they should be, they're the closest to him. It's his family, it's his hometown, but they are, uh, not responding in the way that you would expect them to. Uh, you would think even if they didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they would like the press for their own hometown. But that's not what you see. Um, some of you maybe have grown up in a family where uh, maybe you felt like uh, they, they would always want to push you down, right? And, and they, uh, for whatever reason, and should, instead of like, you know, saying like, oh, you can do this, they're always looking at what you can't do. They're kind of, that's the voice. And that voice may be in your head now. And so, uh, you know, as you get older, though, you go on, it's almost maybe a blessing to have people in your family like telling you, trying to tell you what you can't do and how you, you know, like that in your career. And they'll be saying, like, you can't do this, you can't be done, this can't be done, or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is that Jesus, this is like I said, he is the preeminent prophet, he is the eternal son of God, who became man to dwell among men so that they might be saved. And again, he comes to his own and his own, they don't receive him. And not only that, they have all these questions about him. And uh, 
that's kind of the emphasis here as we're looking at this text. And I think it's important that you understand that because blindness is not just for those that are really far away. Uh, just like with glasses, you might they may say, oh, you're nearsighted or farsighted. You understand that. Well, these people are really close to a situation, and you would think they would be the first to accept, but they are actually the ones that are rejecting uh, what God is doing. I don't know if you remember Joseph's brothers, who he was, uh, Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. He was, uh, his brothers said um, when they saw him, they, they hated his dreams because he had dreams about them bowing down to them. And he was a younger brother who had like his dad, it was partial to, his dad was partial to him. But they saw him one time and said, look at that dreamer. Well, they didn't realize that one day that dreamer that they were putting into the ground uh, that they sent away to die would one day in a way be resurrected before them and rescue them. And so I think it's just important to say when we come to this thing, we say we know what that's like personally, but we also know that we could be in danger because you and I, for the most part, we grow up in church and you kind of uh, learn about all these things and you hear them, but you could think that it's your faith when it's not really at all. And uh, I was thinking... Um, earlier about, you know, when you go to, like, I went to seminary, and so in going to seminary, you think, like, your heart's going to be warmer when you come out, but the reality is sometimes it's like you're so, there's so much coming into your head, and you're thinking about so many things, and you're thinking on them on a higher level than you ever have before, and you could have, you thought, you know, your old devotional life, they like, in a better place, but sometimes it takes a minute to get back there. And so I just say that to you to say, we understand that. Sometimes the closer we are to something, uh, the more difficult it is for us. And so Jesus experienced that, and it should be sometimes a negative example is the best example that you can have. And I think that's what you could say today. We have a negative example. Hopefully, it's a good example for you to say, I, I want to um, not go this route. So let's look at this text here. You start here with the town. And... Uh, the group of people here really are insignificant and inconsequential uh, in the world that they live in. You might call this like a podunk town. You know, it's Nazareth. And uh, you kind of, you know, if you have read anything about Jesus or the Gospels, you know that people are like, uh, could anything come, you know, good come out of that place? I mean, it's not a great place. It's, it's not on the map it's with regard to, it was not a headquarters for, great theological thinking or like any of that kind of stuff. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It's a small, tiny town. It's 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. Um, and, and we know that uh, it's, like I said, it's pretty insignificant when you think about the picture here. Now, you also know that Jesus is in this place where he is, I mean, people are flocking to him. Uh, he, there's times where we've seen he couldn't eat. They were pressing against him. He couldn't get around. He couldn't move in different places. He only would get rest if he left uh, the, the boat and got on a boat and like kind of just traveled to another place. But wherever he went, people knew about him, and they wanted to talk about him. So in verse 1, he comes to his hometown. Like I said, it's an insignificant place. Uh, it's really only mentioned in the New Testament. You don't hear about it in the Old Testament. You don't hear about it from like a great historian, Josephus. Nobody's talking about this place. And so what's funny to me, and I have a friend that works with a lot of really small town mayors, and one of the things you find out is like in a very small town, 
Uh, sometimes those people think they're very, very important. A guy might think he's king and it doesn't matter what it is, you know? Or a queen, like that country song, the queen of the double-wide trailer. She's, not, you know, it's like it doesn't really matter if it's large or small. That tendency is there. And you may grow up in a place right now. It's a very, if you ever get an air, but it's really big in your mind because you're big there, you know? And then if you ever get an airplane and you fly and you think like, whoa, hold on just a second. Even Dallas looks small from 50,000, 30,000 feet or whatever, you know. And you just are aware of that. But this place, evidently, these people uh, have um, great thoughts maybe of themselves. But again, it is a small uh, place. They found uh, some excavations of that. It's like 60 acres about on a rocky hillside with a population at most of 500 people. And so that's kind of where... Uh, he is. Now, as you continue thinking about that, um, sometimes when you're looking at, again, people in this kind of way too, is they might have already felt that. If people were saying, like, could anything come good out of Nazareth, they may have felt that too, you know? And that could have been a part of the culture there where they're like, nothing. You know, somebody could be in such a depressed place where you think, like, nothing good can happen here, you know? They could be in that situation. It's, a, it's a, at a level of unbelief. So, continuing forward, you look at verse 2 and 3, and you see the townspeople. So, you get to meet the town a little bit, just kind of mention that to you. And then the townspeople in verse 2 says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Now, this is interesting. They're astonished. We've been reading Mark. We know people are astonished by Jesus. But, notice what they say, Where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands so you might say something like this um we grew up with him in a small town a lot of times there's not a lot of turnover so everybody knows everybody and so they're kind of oh i know i know that dude i mean I, I i grew up with him he wasn't anything special uh we read that in isaiah about jesus but it, he wasn't anything special and so they're in this place and it's like uh you could think about it and you think like they're looking at him and say like we 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 know of him. Now, what's interesting is when he goes to Capernaum or somewhere like that, they don't wait for Sabbath. Like, they're not waiting for that day. They are like, he they just, they're kind of like, almost this is the same instance. But you understand, like, Jesus went and spoke to them or read to them on the Sabbath day. So he shares with them and he speaks to them, which was a normal thing that they would do in religious uh leaders or, or rabbis would go and teach and they would make that available for them to stand up and teach now in luke 4 17 through 21 uh in that same kind of again i don't know if it's the exact same time but this is what happened and luke, luke 4 17 through 21 says and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are uh, oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says to them, that's a, prophesy, that's a, a, that's a prophecy that is speaking about the coming of Messiah. And Jesus adds, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, the Messiah has come. That's kind of what, he, he's here. And so you think that they would be astonished. They're not astonished. They're not amazed. They, they really, they're saying like, where did this all come from? 
they're almost trying to discredit him together. Have you ever had somebody corporately try to discredit, you know, maybe today would be like, they're sending text while they're in the service. Did you just hear what he said? You know what I mean? And then they'll call each other later or text each other later and say, he's a moron, you know, or whatever, right? So, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, this is, well, that's negative. That wasn't necessarily negative other than to say, like, he's not trained in any way except for with his hands. In the Jewish world, they maybe didn't think that bad about a carpenter. In the, I've read in the Gentile world, some did. But the reality is they're sitting there and they're saying, like, look, his training, which... God, do you ever hear this? And they want to put you and say stuff, and you're just like, man, uh, they're, you're, they're trained in this, and they want to put you in this little box of like, you don't know anything else but this, you know? So that's kind of where Jesus, that's one thing I think is happening. And then the son of Mary and the brother of James and that kind of thing, but when you see that, you might stop and say, the son of Mary. In that world, they would have said something like, always, you would say the son of Joseph. It was just, that was the way that you would speak. Why would they bring Mary into the deal? I think it's a way of like continuing their unbelief because they're, you know, like I said, like small towns, they don't forget anything. You know, in a small town, sometimes the, there are people that think, now it may not be this way, it may be this way in big towns, but in small towns, there are people I've met because I've been around a lot of small towns where it's like their lifelong duty, not given by God, but by themselves, to keep notes on what everybody else has done and particularly the bad things that have happened in their life, so that when something happens good in their life, they can say, you know what, don't you remember 25 years ago? Those kind of people, you know. And so you have that kind of stuff uh, going on. And so certainly it must be an insult, because they may have just said something like this, had noble Joseph not rescued that situation, he, he would have really been considered illegitimate. We still consider him that, but he would be greatly kind of considered like an illegitimate child. And so all of that's going on. They're saying that stuff. And then they speak of these, uh, the, the, his siblings, and they're kind of asking like, well, we know all of them. We know all of those people. And, you know, their sibling, his siblings weren't crazy about him. And they weren't crazy about what he was doing. If you read about them, they were, there was unbelief like shown up, like showing up what he, how he like knows how to work. We know all this stuff. And so they begin to discount him. It says, it goes on in verse 3, and you see that last phrase, and they took offense at him. It, it, like, it produced like a bitterness in them. What, what is he doing coming here saying these things? Why are people following him? We know him. The word offense here is like, it's like the meaning, like a stumbling block. He became a stumbling block. It's like it causes someone to stumble, to slip, to trip up. And so they are like, uh, their faith is tripped up by his ordinary situation in life. And maybe his situation in life that's kind of even more than not ordinary in that like his mom was pregnant before she and Joseph were married. And so all of this stuff is going on. They have taken offense at him. And the scripture says that he will be a stone of stumbling in Isaiah 28. So Jesus 
was an offense. And not only that, his message was offensive. I mean, him standing up before them maybe offended them a little bit, thinking like what would give him the, the, the feeling of being able to do that at one level. And then his message was offensive. It, it was shocking. You know, there are sometimes people that uh, talk about being a Christian and it's offensive because they're just offensive people. Like nobody wants to be around them that much because they offend everybody with their mouth or with their actions or what, you know. Like, there's just offensive people, and you're like, come on, man. Like, it's not the gospel that's offensive. You are, you know? But Jesus, he's not like actually speaking the gospel, and it is offensive. And it's a struggle because they're listening but not receiving it. If you've studied uh, John's gospel, there was a time when he had fed 5,000 people, and kind of following all that, he began to say and speak of the things that uh, he, he was doing and what he was all about. And he says uh, in him, and when they hear that, they all leave. And he looks at the 12 and says, like, are you going to leave too? And the only saving thing of the whole deal is in John 6, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's like you need divine enablement to, re- to, to receive the message. And so I think it's just important to say Jesus is offensive to people. His message is offensive. And these people are rejecting him because they cannot see. They are blind in their unbelief. Now you're saying, Jared, okay, it's great to learn about this town and these sorry towns people. (laughs) But, like, you're going to have to help me. We're going to get there. I'm just going to explain some things I think might be really helpful for you. But notice what verse 4 says. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Now, this might be a way to say this. Familiarity can bring contempt. I mentioned to you earlier, like, going to uh, theologi- get theological education can, it can be a hindrance to your faith in a way. It... it, it Doing excessive Bible studies can kind of be like that sometimes, where it's like you're just around it all the time, and if you're not really careful, you can be really familiar with all the stuff and know all the answers and, you know, that kind of thing, but like your heart is kind of moving away from those things. So, Jesus says, there's kind of like, you could say, these social circles that he's in. You have his hometown. You get a little closer, his relatives, a little bit closer. The exact opposite would take place, but really his family did not all receive him. And so what we see is he's going to, you're going to, you're going to see in this text, it says in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there except that, uh, you know, to heal a few people. Now what, what's going on in that? Um, Matthew thirteen fifty eight says, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I think that's just important to to understand that Jesus operates primarily in the place of belief and acceptance. Where there's unbelief, it's not that he can't do, it's not that he, like when when we're saying this in verse 5, it's not that he can't do anything. It's that there is a place where um, when he sent out his disciples, he said like go into these towns and share the message and if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet and go to another. There's a level of like, Jesus' ministry is to go to those who will believe this message. He's expounding this message. And so 
he, he's not going to stay somewhere where he's not reaching and touching people. One uh, writer said, Jesus' family, family are outsiders and he is a stranger in his own home. Thus, exposure to Jesus and the gospel is no guarantee of faith. Indeed, apart from faith, exposure to the gospel inoculates and as often as it enlivens. What does that mean, inoculates? That's kind of a term you don't use maybe every day. He means the gospel can work like a vaccine that hinders you from grasping the truth of it. So it's kind of because you can get around it and be familiar with it and not really believe it. I have a friend who was diagnosed with cancer several months ago. I prayed for him early, his, earlier. His name is Kyle. And uh, he had surgery this last week. And um, I was talking to him about his faith, and I was like, hey, what's going on with that? Like, is it grown through this? Or is your faith, like, been tripped up by this? You know, you're 38, little kids in the center of your career, you know? young wife, just wonderful family. Like, what, what is, what, what's going on with that? And with him, his closeness to the gospel only grew his faith, you know? We could know all about Jesus, but when troubles come, you begin to think, I don't love him, I don't care about him, I don't trust him, you know, that kind of thing. He actually is being drawn closer. He says, I've never been closer than I am today there's this danger it can either enliven or like further deaden you to things so i think it's important to see that and understand that so jesus is um explaining the gospel he is bringing that and there are still like a handful of people there that absolutely that believe that in that town but not many now so we look at the town we look at the townspeople we see the outward kind of response jesus is going to move away from them because they rejected him but then look at his inward response in verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he, went, uh, and he went about among the villages teaching. He marveled at their unbelief. That, that's kind of interesting because there's all this. It may be a marvel of fa- growing faith or a marvel at rejection. Jesus looks at them and says, I cannot believe. I'm amazed at their unbelief. There's another time Jesus, and this is one of the things you see in the Gospels a lot, are these Gentile people that will believe. There was a time when Jesus marveled at a Roman centurion. You know what he marveled at? Not his unbelief, but his faith. But here, what a shocking thing for you to marvel, or for the Son of God who became man to marvel at the unbelief of these people. Edwards writes, what amazing, but it's hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe in him. Going on, he says, this, that is the greatest problem in the world, and herein lies the divine judgment on humanity. Humanity wants a spectacular sign of God, or like the devil, a great display of divine power, but it does not want God to become a human being like one of us. The people of Nazareth, Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, then they would believe. Sometimes that's what church leadership people do, is they want to make it extraordinary, you know, really big and like all of this stuff, because they think if they entertain you with these 
massive kind of things, and you'll believe, you know? Well, if we can get them there and you know, do all this stuff, then they'll believe. And it's like, man, it doesn't, it didn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So, thinking about all of that, I want you to remind you, like in Isaiah 53, that the scripture says of Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. What he, what he, what we should look at, or like that we should look at him. I guess you could say, and no beauty that he should, we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So Jesus comes, and he doesn't come in a spectacular way. And he is rejected by those closest to him. That's a dangerous place. Think about your children. I worry about this all the time. I don't know if you do. I have like kind of fears of this. My kids grow up around spiritual things. My kids grow up and they've never, I mean, honestly, they could probably count on their hands how many times they've missed church. This church, you know, just a handful of times maybe. I mean, maybe it's more than that, but it's rare. They don't know life outside of being a part of these things. They they know that we're going to do family worship every night. They grow up doing all of those things. They're so familiar. And it's not like I'm something I'm saying, oh, I'm so proud. It's just, it is where we're at. It's, I mean, that's the life. I mean, God's called us to himself and guided us to do what we're doing. And it, it's, there's so many things that they're, they're going to be a part of. They're going to community group. They're going to be a part of family worship. They're going to be in church all the time. They're going to hear the Bible read. And you kind of, you, you just think, Lord, don't let the, closeness to all these things like deaden them to them because you know just like when a parent tells a child something over and over and finally they're like I don't even listen to them anymore I don't want them to be there you know I don't want your children to be there and really I know we're not responsible for what God does in the heart of a person but what you do want is that you would set before them a living and vibrant faith you don't want to say we're lazy about the things of God we're lazy about worship. We're lazy about praying with you. We're lazy. We're kind of indifferent towards what's said. We're like uh, looking at the churches and kind of being like, I don't like this and I don't like that. You don't want that for them. You want a living and vibrant faith so that they say, you know what? It was not just traditionalism. Mom and dad were not just wanting to be entertained. They loved Christ. They loved one another. They sought to build a life of love and gratitude towards God. They loved us. They presented for before the message. They loved to, to treasure Christ. They loved to think about Him. They sought Him and, and, and lived in a way that would bring honor and glory to His name. And so that even if they're really close, that they won't think closeness means deadness, but something living, something that transforms and changes the heart. So I'd say, kids, if you're here, 
Again, sometimes listening to a sermon is not your most exciting thing in the whole world. I understand that. But if you're here today, I would just say, like, if you're around it all the time, you know there's a danger that you just heard it before. There's a danger in your own parents' hearts. There's a danger in my heart. And so we want to respond appropriately to Jesus, and that would be believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The longer you're around the truths of God and you reject those, the further your heart moves away from those things. So draw near. Draw near to Him. Turn in faith. Trust in the Messiah. Put your faith and trust in the One who's come to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would warm our hearts towards You. Toward Your Gospel. Toward Your people. Toward the things that You call us to, Lord. We ask that today. We ask that for our families. For our kids here. We ask that they would be enlivened by the truth. That they would treasure it. In Christ's name, amen.